You're listening to the Giving Thought podcast from the Charities Aid Foundation's think tank, Giving Thought. Listening to the Giving Thought podcast. This is the podcast from CAF's think tank, Giving Thought, in which we look at big issues and themes relating to philanthropy and civil society. I'm your host, as ever, Rod Davis, uh, and I'll come on in a moment to tell you about this week's episode. But first, um, a small announcement uh, for anybody who hasn't picked up on this already uh, from my social media feeds or elsewhere. I think it actually made it into the sector trade press here in the UK. Uh, I am actually leaving CAF um, towards the middle of September for Pastors New. Um, I won't be going very far. I'm going to be doing some more work um, with the Pears Foundation and potentially a few other things, all still focusing on philanthropy and civil society issues. Uh, so I'll very much still be doing writing and indeed podcasting uh, about philanthropy in the future um, but I'm not yet sure what the exact status of the CAF Giving Thought podcast is going to be so it's quite possible that this will be the last uh, ever episode or at least in its current form. Um, I'll give a bit more detail at the end of the podcast about what's going on, what I know of plans at the moment and where you can find me in the future um, but for now let's get back to this week's episode. Um, so this is a conversation with Shana Goldsecker and Michael Moody uh, who are the authors of a book called Generation Impact, How Next-Gen Donors Are Revolutionising Giving, um, which was out a couple of years ago, but just has a new, revised, um, updated and expanded version. Um, so I sat down with Shana and Michael a couple of weeks back um, for a great conversation. I'll just give you a bit more biographical detail about them before we go into that. Um, so Shana is one of the leading experts worldwide on next-generation and multi-generational family philanthropy. Um, she's actually a next-gen donor herself, um, and she runs a consultancy that she founded called 2164, um, which serves philanthropic and family enterprises and sort of advises them about how to manage family and next-gen philanthropy. Um, and Michael Moody um, is an academic who's been working for a long time in the field of philanthropy. Um, he holds the world's first ever endowed chair for family philanthropy, uh, the Fry Foundation Chair at the Dorothy A. Johnson Centre for Philanthropy at Grand Valley State University. Um, and I've sort of had some correspondence with Michael um, a few times over the, the last couple of years. And certainly I managed to meet him and was on a panel with him indeed at the Arnova conference uh, in San Diego in 2019, which was great. Um, so without further ado, let's go into the conversation, a great wide-ranging conversation about next-gen philanthropy, sort of broader trends in philanthropy, what's going on at the moment with two very knowledgeable people. Um, and as I say, I'll be back at the end for the usual bit of housekeeping and tidying up and also some slightly sort of expanded info about what might be happening next with the podcast. So stay tuned for that. Okay, great. So I'm here with uh, Shana Goldsecker and Michael Moody. Hi to both of you. Hello. Hello. 
thanks ever so much for finding some time to come on the podcast. Um, so as I said in the intro, uh, Shana and Michael are here because um, they are the co-authors of a book which has a uh, new updated and expanded uh, edition out at the moment. It's called Generation Impact, How Next Gen Donors Are Revolutionising Giving. And it's great to have you on the podcast to have a conversation all about what's in the book and some of what you found in the research for that and, and sort of more broadly in your work about this this particular uh, group of next-gen donors who seem to be different in all kinds of interesting ways and, uh, you know, kind of get into some of that. So I I guess the the best place to start is to just to get you to say in your own words a bit about kind of why you wrote the book and and what's uh, in the book and particularly sort of why there's a new updated edition. Uh, Michael, maybe you could kick things off. Yeah, great. Thanks. And thanks again for for having us on this. Um, You know, I think it's an interesting convergence uh, that happened and we're now realizing it happened about almost exactly 10 years ago, a little bit over 10 years ago, where Sharna and I, from our each distinctive kind of positions in this field, saw something really important happening that not enough people were talking about, and we didn't have enough good research information and data about. And that is this emergence of what will be, as we say in the book, the most significant donors in history, this cohort of Gen X and millennial donors who are uh, just coming into their roles right now as major donors. And that's really the focus of our work is on those who have the capacity for significant giving, either through their own wealth creation or through inheriting uh, a role in a philanthropic vehicle or inheriting a role in their giving family. That, you know, This is an incredibly important group that's going to be major donors for many decades. And, in, and they're, they're coming into their roles at a time when the field is rapidly changing, a whole lot of innovation happening, and innovation, by the way, that they really want to push uh, even further. And uh, and so, you know, we saw this incredibly important group of people, and we we realized that there's not been that much research on them. We 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 don't have a lot of books on them that we can look at. And uh, and so, Sharna, from her perspective of somebody who works deeply with multi generational giving families, and and my perspective as somebody who you know I at the time had just taken a role as the first. Uh, endowed chair in family philanthropy, we said, you know, let's work together, combine our kind of uh, expertise and do this book to try to listen to this group of really important donors in their own words as much as we can. Um, and so that's what we did at the book that came out in 2017 called Generation Impact. And then uh, and then the updated edition that, you know, that book really resonated uh, in a way that was very heartening for us, of course. And so, you know, we did a lot of speaking around it and we, we, uh, we, we with some support from the Gates Foundation, we're able to write up some best practice guides for three key audiences, three audiences who really want to and need to engage this incredibly important next generation of donors. That is nonprofits and fundraisers for one, uh, families and those who work with families for two and, and, and advisors. Um, and so we wrote up those best practice guides, and we also did a discussion guide and other things. Um, and then also since 2017, of course, and, and even before that, when we did the actual uh, research and interviews and survey for the book, uh, there's a whole lot of things that changed in the world uh, since 2015, 2016. Uh, and, uh, and so we, we, we uh, approached the Wiley about doing a new expanded and updated edition that then eventually came out in the fall of 2020. Um, and what that new edition includes, it's the original book um, because the book still stands as is, but we added a new preface that really addressed some of the questions that we had been getting as we went around and promoted the book and talked to various audiences about it. Questions like, you know, what are the biggest challenges 
uh, that this, these changes are going to mean for the field? What's the difference between earners and inheritors? Um, and what would be different if we had done these, you know, gathered this data now uh, or post, you know, post Trump and post a whole lot of things that have been happening since 2015, 2016. So that's really, we wrote a preface on that. And then we also added in those best practice guides. Um, it's about 30% new material in this expanded edition. And, uh, and we're really excited about how that's, uh, that's been received as well. So that's what's in the new edition. Great. Um, and, and Shana, in, in terms of what people can expect if they, they come read the book, I mean, we'll, we'll obviously get into a lot of the, the detail in the conversation, but, but what are the kind of the, the key messages about um, how next-gen donors are, are genuinely different from previous generations? When you think of a philanthropist, when someone comes to mind, you often picture, you know, someone like Andrew Carnegie or Rockefeller or Rosenwald, sort of older white, usually men, uh, who were the stalwarts, the gilded age icons of philanthropy, who set up foundations and made charitable gifts that often built the pillars of our societies. Um, and today, as Michael said, we were noticing that you have Gen Xers, millennials, we're now starting to see Gen Z, um, folks who are younger stepping into philanthropy, both because they've made wealth at earlier ages. We now know that 1% of the population in the United States owns 43% of the wealth in our country. And we're in the largest wealth transfer ever with 59 trillion being transferred to the next generations, the post baby boom generations. And so um, we were looking at these trends, these changes, and we really wanted to understand what was going on in philanthropy because they stand to have an outsized impact on our philanthropic world. For all of us who are involved in our local community organizations, our schools, our synagogues, our churches, our mosques, our library, you know, every um, civic entity that we're a part of, um, these donors are not waiting to retire into the sunset of their lives to be philanthropic, but are instead saying, I have access to wealth at earlier ages, I see there are great needs in the world, and so how can I step in now to make a difference? Um, and um, our book is called Generation Impact. We can talk about impact in a minute. Um, but we also talk about how they're bringing revolution. They're ready to say, uh, we can't keep doing the same things and expect different results. We need to take risks. We need to innovate. We need to be open to new kinds of uh, vehicles, experiments, uh, to really make change on the issues that we care about in our society. Um, and they're willing to go there on behalf of impact. Yeah, absolutely. And as, as you say, we'll, we'll come on to that that question of impact, which is a really kind of key focus of the the book as something that kind of um, ties together all, all of these next gen donors in terms of something they're interested in. Um, I guess in terms of of what makes them different, I suppose that can be split potentially into what it is that they're focusing on and whether that's different or, or whether they're uh, focusing on similar things to previous generations, but doing it in a different way. Um, do you have a sense of, of where the balance lies between those two things? I mean, are they giving to different things than their parents' generation and they're interested in different causes? Or is, is it that they're broadly interested in the same things, but they're taking quite different approaches when they when they do? Yes, more the latter. We've discovered that what they're funding is not so much the issue. They perceive their um, parents' and grandparents' causes to be quite the same as theirs, at least the top couple, basic needs, uh, education. Of course, there are some on the rise with the next generation, climate change and civil liberties, for example. 
um, but quite similar still at the, at the top end of the causes that multiple generations care about. It's really how they're approaching their giving that's different. Um, they're so focused on impact. They perceive their parents' and grandparents' generation to be you know, driven by a sense of duty or obligation, uh, maybe giving to causes because their friends have asked them uh, or their advisors have told them it's good for their, their tax deductions. But the next gen is really prioritizing impact first. They want to see the impact they want they can make. They want to be able to touch it. In many cases, be involved with it. Be a partner to nonprofit organizations, NGOs making a difference uh, around the globe. And so, how they're getting involved uh, is quite different. And we can, you know, reflect on some of the stories in our book. We have. Uh, Next Gen, who we interviewed in addition to a, to a survey that we fielded, and a baker's dozen, right, 13 of them agreed to tell their stories in first-person accounts, uh, often of them going public for the first time. And Daniel Laurie, this gentleman who we interviewed from the San Francisco Bay Area, um, he moved back to his hometown and he said, let's address basic needs, poverty, homelessness, hunger, um, but we're going to target a set amount, a smaller amount of grantees. We're going to stick with them over time. We're going to take, you know, a baseline assessment of how the strategies they're using are making a difference. We're going to stick with them over time, even give them R&D grants to help them try out new approaches and then remeasure and see uh, if what they're doing is making an impact in the world. Um, really just give them operating funds to carry out their mission to address critical issues in their community. So sort of how they're approaching giving is very intentional and uh, they're sticking with their grantees to see how they can make an impact and willing to be in there for the long haul, particularly if they're starting at young ages, they know that they might be around for decades to help organizations make lasting and systemic change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you, you talked, you made it clear again there that sort of impact is a, is a really kind of core focus for a lot of these donors. Um, but I found it really interesting in the book that you, you sort of acknowledge that actually, uh, even though there's this shared desire to want to see the impact they're giving, actually what people mean by impact ha covers lots of different things, but potentially along a spectrum. And that might be from sort of seeking quite rigorous financial metrics but it and outcome measures. But for others, it might just be more about getting a, a compelling story from the organisation they're supporting or a sense of human connection. Um, Michael, I don't know if you could say a bit about, you know, how we need to kind of uh, tease out some of these different elements of what's meant by impact and how... Uh, next-gen donors are, are thinking about it when they come to their giving. Yeah, you know, this is one of those um, areas of what we've found when we've done all this work uh, that, you know, is going to be a, a, a major challenge going forward. You know, we don't want to paint just a really sunny picture that everything is going to be wonderful because the next generation is coming on board and they're super focused on impact and isn't that great for everybody and every community. There's going to be some challenges along the way. It's, of course, fantastic that they're focused so much on impact, you know, they want to give in order to create impact rather than just give because they feel obligated to, or give because they want to gain status or something like that. You know, their, their focus on impact is a good thing, but it leads to some significant consequences, particularly for the charities and nonprofits that work with them. Um, because again, they, they may have very individualized or different understandings of impact. You know, we had some people in the book said, you know, look, I'm a numbers guy. I want to see spreadsheets. That's what impact means to me. And other people said, I want to go on site visits. I want to see the faces of the kids in the classroom that my family has been able to fund in a new way. Uh, and, uh, and so for nonprofits and charities, the challenge is uh, that 
you know, do you have to show a different kind of impact for every single uh, major younger donor that you're bringing on? Um, and that's that, you know, we, we acknowledge that that's a real challenge. Another big challenge, of course, is that some nonprofits can show the impact of their work in much more, you know, significant and easy ways than in others. So this, this, this focus on seeing the impact, which is really what they share, they share this, this focus on wanting to see the impact, not just wanting to be a drop in the bucket, but wanting to see the difference that they've made. Um, some nonprofits can show that much easier than others. Uh, some have, you know, um, uh, you know, confidentiality issues that they can't, you know, they can't bring people on site visits to see uh, the clients that they work with, uh, or some have long-term global kind of goals uh, like climate change organizations. It's very hard to see the impact of your giving to a climate change organization when that's such a massive a long-term global issue. And so um, there, are, there are definitely some challenges that come from this. What we recommend, and this is in this best practice guide that we added to the, to the latest uh, updated version of the book, um, is simply to have the impact conversation, to, to, to focus on that um, so much when you're having the conversations with the major donors, the younger major donors that you have, um, having a conversation about, okay, what do we agree on together as a definition of impact? Um, and that may very well be an internal definition. You know, there may be that, okay, what we really need is a new computer system to, you know, to manage our donor database. Uh, and, you know, and that's what, that's going to be what we, you know, what we show you as the impact of your giving. And that's what's most meaningful to us. And if they're on the inside, they're having that transparent, candid conversation about impact with the partner organizations that they work with, then that can count as them seeing the impact of their work. So I think that's really the key is to have the impact conversation. Um, and, but we also just want to recognize that it's, that's even that conversation can be difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I just wanted to follow on from that because it, it struck me one of the things that, that might happen if there's a this this core focus on impact is that it starts to frame the, the approaches that people take. Did you get any sense that it was leading some of these next gen donors to skew towards focusing more locally rather than globally because it was easier to see that impact or indeed focus more on kind of direct service provision rather than uh, kind of longer term advocacy, because again, it's it's much more difficult often to get a tangible sense of that impact. Yeah, that's a really good uh, good way to to think about the question because um, you know you know one of the things that we when we went into this research, I think my me personally when I went in, you know, I expected there to be a real strong emphasis among the next generation on global issues because we know that they have access to global information. You know, they, they know more about and can easily find out more information sometimes about hunger in, you know, Sudan because it's so much in the news uh, than they know about hunger maybe in their family's hometown. Um, and so we thought that this emphasis on international global causes was gonna be a big uh, focus for them. And it certainly is. Um, but, uh, but what mitigates against that is that they really want, and we can talk more about this, they really wanna be hands-on in their engagement. They wanna build deep relationships and they wanna see impact like we were just discussing. And so um, that, you know, that means that they wanna be engaged locally uh, because that's where you can best see the impact. Uh, that's where you can be more hands-on. Uh, and so I think they're, you know, they're both global and local. Some of them you know, clearly are very focused on global giving. We've got people, uh, one of the people we, we profile that tells their story in the book, Sarah OJ. Um, who's very much involved in, in giving uh, uh, internationally through was the, one of the co-founders of Maverick Collective. Um, and, uh, and so we have some who are very much involved in global giving, 
but that's not a major trend across the next gen like many people think it would be because of the, the nature of the information that they can get. Um, and, and again, you know, they, they, this is also true for those who are members of giving families that are deeply involved in local uh, communities uh, and they're very place-based in their family vehicles like their family foundation. Many of the next gen don't even live in the community where the family family's giving has been so focused and where their foundations now are clearly uh, you know, continuing to give, they still wanna give in those local communities. They, they wanna come back to the family's hometown and see the impact. And they, they, they actually wanna steward that local legacy. So I think that was a, that was a su somewhat surprising finding from this work. And we see it being expressed in a lot of different ways. As far as the advocacy side of things, you know, I think uh, they are definitely more focused on giving to advocacy organizing, movement building, those kind of things, and, and even systemic causes and root causes, they talk a lot about that. Uh, they want, you know, one person once said they want to be louder in their giving than their, than their parents and grandparents. We have one person who we quoted in the book, I think it was interesting, said, you know, I think all nonprofits ultimately should uh, try to go out of business. You know, they, they should they should ultimately try to solve the problem that they're that that, uh, that they're trying to solve and address the root causes, so that then they're no longer necessary. Uh, so they they're they're very focused on on trying to achieve that longer term systemic impact. But like other donors and older donors, they're not quite sure exactly how to go about doing that. It's really hard to figure out how to do systemic uh, oriented giving, and so um, so they're struggling like all donors to figure out how to move the needle on those root causes. Um, and yeah, and so uh, we'll, we, that's gonna be one of the really interesting things to see where all of this goes. Uh, will they figure out better ways of trying to address systemic root causes, which as you know, as a historian of philanthropy has been there since the beginning, you know, Rockefeller and Carnegie talked about root causes. So we're still struggling with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Shana, I just wanted to, to follow on because Michael was was mentioning there that in terms of this focus on impact, one of the things that leads to is a desire to be quite hands on in, in giving. Um, you talk quite a lot in the book about this, but um, maybe you could say a bit about the whether you know nonprofits particularly should see that as an opportunity to tap into additional skills from this new breed of, of potential donors who, who want to not just give money at a hands off way, but to get involved, or whether actually there are potentially some risks attached to it in terms of the sort of power dynamics that it introduces? Yes, to both. Um, the next generation definitely thinks about their resources beyond their uh, financial philanthropic dollars. They look at all of the tools in their toolbox, from their time to their talent and skills that they have to offer a nonprofit, um, to their ties. The, we added a fourth T to that age-old maxim, time, talent, and treasure, because we saw the next gen really utilize their horizontal networks, their friends, their peers, their colleagues for insight, information, inspiration, strategy, uh, even leveraging sometimes their smaller gifts into bigger gifts. So yes, I encourage ne uh, nonprofits to tap into the whole person, if you will. I think uh, we had one uh, next-gen donor who we interviewed said, I know that when a next gen comes to me, they're often looking at me as either the child of so-and-so or as an ATM. And I really want them to see me as me. <laughs> and so I have all this to offer the organization. And I, I appreciate for a nonprofit, it's hard to develop a relationship with all of their donors. But really, the next gen, partly because they're starting at such a young age, are interested often in a relationship. 
one next gen donor said to us, I like to date, I like to, I like the courting, I like the um, getting to know a nonprofit and have them get to know me before I get married, right, and stay monogamous for a long time as the metaphor extends. Um, but if there are ways that nonprofits can understand the time, talent, treasure, and ties that a, a next gen donor can bring, we think it could be very advantageous and for many years to come. You know, so whether it's um, ahead of time, sort of um, categorizing the types of engagement experiences your nonprofit can offer, right? Many nonprofits only see the board as the mechanism for engagement, and you only have so many seats on that board. And so how can ahead of time you kind of think about what are all the ways we can engage people? One um, nonprofit leader said he had a next-gen donor come to him, and as an entrepreneur, the gentleman wanted to give strategic advice to the nonprofit and said, I don't need a board seat. I don't need anything. I just want to come hang out at your strategy sessions four times a year and offer some ideas. That would be the best use of my talents, right? Another woman said to us, women are always funneled into fundraising and gala committees. If I get invited to pick napkin colors one more time, I'm going to scream. She said, I have a law degree and a mediator's license. I have so much to offer a nonprofit. So, you know, again, think about the whole person Think about the asking them the kind of time they can volunteer, the skills that they have to help support what your organization might need. Of course, you don't want to bend over backwards to the point where you're adding scope just to accommodate volunteer engagement. Um, but hopefully there is a win-win to be found in supporting the organization and engaging a donor who could be a partner for years to come. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think that idea of participation is really, um, really important. It made me think, actually, one of the things I've talked to other people on the podcast about is in terms of the prominence at the moment of uh, kind of social movements, and particularly ones that are more operating on a kind of network model and, and using the power of technology to bring people together. One of the questions in my mind is, what is it that appeals to people about those as opposed to traditional nonprofits, potentially? And it seems as though they, they are better sometimes at offering people those opportunities to participate. Did you get any sense in particularly in thinking of the kind of revised version of the book um whether any of the donors that you were were talking to had sort of thought actually do you know what i might get involved with with a kind of non-traditional movement or something that isn't actually a, a formal non-profit because that's a better way for me to get involved in the way that i want to well it's it's interesting you know the, i think what appeals to certainly there's a, a lot of as i said a lot of interest in supporting movements supporting organiza organizing um and uh, and sort of activism and 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 we saw that we also uh this past year sharna and i put out a, a survey um to the next to a similar group of next generation donors who with the capacity for big giving um asking them what were they doing in response to the crises of 2020 um and uh and you know we didn't we didn't have it as an option that people could tick off we was an open-ended question and Almost seventy percent of them said, "Well, I engaged in activism in this last year," and that I think you know they they see that as many next gen folks do, whether they have capacity for big giving or not, they see activism and organizing as a as a possible way of achieving change, um, and we see that certainly among these uh, these next gen donors. Um, so I think what's appealing to them about uh, being engaged in that might very well be, as you say, the means by which they can. At, you know, plug into the movement and be involved in a hands-on way, but it's also this idea that they feel like those kind of activism and, and movement, especially in times of crisis like this last year, can can move the needle, right? Again, everything that they're talking about really comes back to impact. They feel like that, you know, if what's necessary is 
not just you know giving to a traditional nonprofit you, you know a five in the U.S. to be a five hundred one c three writing a grant to a five hundred one c three they would uh, you know if if it's if it's about supporting a political organization or um, or you know providing funds for a an, a, a, a loose collection of kind of um, you know movement organizations built around a network model uh, or doing crowdfunding or other things like that you know whatever the case is that can lead to whatever the means are that can lead to greater impact on those issues that they care about, um, then that's why they're supporting it. So I would say it's probably more about the potential for those kind of network movements to lead to real change, and they're beginning to see how that can happen, uh, than it is the, the nature just of, the, of the, the, you know, the technology that they can use to do that. I would just echo what Michael's saying in that we had always noticed the next gen were um, vehicle agnostic and sort of organization agnostic, right? That they're willing to use all the tools in their toolbox and all the tools in the nonprofit sector to make a change, whether it was setting up a private foundation, a donor advised fund. Um, in the United States, we have what we call 501c4s, where you can also use philanthropic dollars to advocate for policy change. You don't get a tax deduction, but you still get to advocate for your causes. We're seeing um, more donors set up LLCs, which is a private entity, so you can give to uh, for-profit investments that you think will lead to social change, not just give to nonprofit organizations. Um, and then, you know, as Michael said, we had surveyed this audience again this last year, and around the pandemic, the racial reckoning, et cetera, people were going beyond their philanthropic dollars to invest in change. So, you know, whether it was literally like knitting their own masks at home that they would give out to neighbors or um, utilizing the, the engineers in their businesses and lending them to nonprofits to build new digital platforms or using their own purchasing power, right? Like the, the dollars that you would use to go buy groceries or coffee or um, buy food at a restaurant, they were choosing to buy local or from BIPOC owned organizations. So, um, we always saw the philanthropic innovation, if you will, and now we're seeing next gens go beyond the philanthropic dollars to use all the tools in their toolbox to make a difference. Yeah, it's really interesting. I was certainly going to ask you some questions about the the particular kind of vehicles and structures um, that they they use, but to, yeah, to hear that they're sort of agnostic about those or just use the ones that work best for them at a particular time is is really interesting. Um, just just taking that one step further, in terms of the um, the approaches that they use, not just not just the vehicles, is there any sense that they are more open to the idea of collaboration perhaps than previous generations? Because I know there is a kind of archetype of the the kind of individual lone hero philanthropist who comes up with a brilliant solution to a problem and goes out and kind of delivers the solution but do next gen uh, donors think differently are they kind of looking to work with others from the outset so i would say that uh yes uh in, in the short answer is yes they are uh, very open and perhaps even uh, they would certainly perceive more open to collaboration than their parents and grandparents or previous generations as they perceive them um, and that takes a few forms though so i would say in one sense uh, they are certainly much more uh, excited about and, and eager to engage with their peers uh, in, in both learning about causes and learning about their communities um, and, uh, and, and leveraging their dollars together uh, in, through things like giving circles and other ways that they can have a greater impact by working with peers. They see collaboration with their peers as a way of increasing their impact and, um, and they, they just enjoy it too. I think they, they like the idea of coming together with like-minded uh, young people who uh, who are also in some ways, you know, struggling with the same question of 
I know I want to do good in the world. I have this incredibly privileged chance to do good in the world, um, but I'm trying to figure out what the best way to do that. And, and they, they see the benefit of talking to and engaging with their peers around that. So that's one form of collaboration. I will say that they also are more interested in collaborating inside their families as well. Uh, you know, one of the myths, uh, I think, of the next generation, particularly those who are, you know, in these multi-generational giving families um, that are part of that wealth transfer that we've already talked about, you know, they, this is this idea that they, that they want, uh, that there's, they want to take the baton in the relay race from the previous generations and leave the previous generations in the past. And then they're in charge now, they're running the race. Uh, and they don't like that, that, I, that way of thinking about it. That metaphor doesn't make sense to them. They want to be uh, on a team, a multi-generational team with their parents and grandparents and older uh, uh, siblings and, um, and, and whether that's within their family or, or on the board of a nonprofit or in other ways, they really value this idea of multi-generational collaboration um, where they as, if you will, rookies on the team have a lot of things that they can bring, you know, new skills, new ideas, lots of energy, um, but they, they recognize that veterans also bring their own wisdom and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and uh, you know, connections and other things that, that are great for veterans uh, to help mentor the rookies. And they love that, that idea of cross-generational mentoring. So I think that's a, a way of thinking about their, their orientation to collaboration, which is really helpful as well, because it does kind of go against our perception often of the next generation as wanting simply to put their own stamp on things, make their own name for themselves. Uh, you know, they, they really like the idea of collaborating across generations. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I'll come back to that in a moment. I wanted to, to touch actually on this whole question of um, kind of family wealth and inherited wealth as opposed to, to created wealth, because it's something you talk about a, a lot in the book. Uh, and Shana, maybe you could give give a sense of you know, kind of what we're talking about in terms of the balance between the two. I mean, whether most of what we're talking about here in terms of next gen is, is inherited or family wealth or whether there's a growing amount of um, of self-created wealth and what the differences are when it comes to, to philanthropy. I mean, are people who've inherited their wealth, do they have quite a different mindset and approach um, and to people who've created their own wealth? So in our research, the balance does tip more to inherited um, wealth for the people who we surveyed and interviewed, but still more than expected have earned their own, um, perhaps because of right financial markets or technology uh, innovations bringing about financial windfalls at young ages. So we're definitely seeing a mix these days. Um, and one of the things that is remarkable is how similar they are in their journeys, their philanthropic journeys, whether they were born into it, or as our colleague Jim Grubman writes in his book, Strangers in Paradise, you know, our immigrants to wealth, he says, says you're a native if you grew up with wealth before the age of 12. If you came into it later, you're an immigrant stepping into a new world, um, which is an interesting metaphor. But, you know, both have to come to terms with their own identity, just as everyone psychologically, developmentally goes through a phase of stepping into the adult that they're going to be. When you have philanthropy added to it, people often take their time becoming the kind of donors they're going to be. And so both inheritors and earners go through that process of asking themselves kind of, how did I come to have this opportunity? And upon whose shoulders do I stand that gave me the opportunities I had to arrive in the places that I have in life? And then who am I as an independent adult? What do I value? What do I care about in the world? And what do I want to bring my resources to bear to work on? And that kind of identity journey is common, I think, among all the next-gen donors we interviewed. What, what's often different is the, um, the speed, the pace at which earners versus inheritors can 
implement the kind of uh, experiments or changes that they want to implement. So if, you know, earners have more autonomy, it's their resources. And so if they see an emerging issue, if they want to pivot their strategy, you know, per, definitely during the pandemic, a lot of donors said, you know, I don't want to spend a year studying an issue area anymore. I, I want to go rapid and redoubled, as we've been saying, to really focus on the issues of the day. And uh, earners have a little bit more autonomy to make that kind of pivot than an inheritor who might be sitting on a multi-generational board, or as Michael said, playing on a multi-generational team. And you have to kind of go back to the team, you know, and get into a huddle and sort of discuss uh, and move the whole group, right, to pivot a strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one thing I've sort of seen in, put forward uh, in lots of places as a, as a potential difference between next-gen philanthropists or sort of new approach within philanthropy is putting aside the traditional idea that you can separate in to some extent the way in which wealth is created or invested and you know efforts to do good through giving it away and increasingly a sort of sense that you need to to look at everything holistically or in the round and um, did you get a sense in the work that you were doing that next-gen donors do approach their giving in that way and actually that raises questions in their mind either about inherited wealth and, and where their family's wealth has come from, if it is inherited wealth, or about how they themselves are running a business or creating their own wealth. Yeah, well, I'll, maybe the best way to, to start that, the answer is really to give you an example that comes from uh, the book of some, another one of these donors that were, that uh, you know agreed to sort of tell their story in the book. Uh, and, and this one is Justin Rockefeller. Um, who's fifth generation of the Rockefeller family and uh, is very much involved in the, 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 the foundation vehicles uh, and, and is now, you know, serves on the board of the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, which is the main family foundation in the, the Rockefeller universe. Um, and, you know, he talks about how um, he, everything in his life, and, he's, and he, all has, he and his wife have this really specific way that they do this. He, in his professional life and in his, his engagement with his family, uh, have specific ways of doing this. But everything for him is about aligning his resources with his values. Uh, and, uh, and so he does that in various ways. You know, in the family foundation, uh, he did that by, you know, along with his sister Valerie and others, uh, but really driven by the next generation on the board pushing the Rockefeller Brothers Fund to divest of all fossil fuel related investments in their endowment um, and to then invest in uh, green technology and, and green energy sources. Uh, and, and so and, and they were able to do that. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, they were very well aware that they are the biggest, uh, most famous fossil fuel, uh, you know, fortune in the world, uh, and we're very much known as a family that made their money off of fossil fuels. And this is a huge symbolic step as well as uh, an actual financial step for them. Um, but for them, it was all for him in particular is very much in, in line with the idea that he needed to live his values in all parts of his life. And he's now actually doing a lot of work to help other next generation folks in their own families do the same thing where they uh, they try to help their families, uh, you know, create change through changing how they invest the money, uh, either their personal resources, which, as we know, are significant or the family resources, the endowments. So I think that's an illustration of this, as you say, holistic view of their of thinking about their wealth. You know, we had we talked to a number of people who uh, who felt very much like their their role as the next generation in a multi-generational wealthy family was to uh, 
they didn't maybe always go so far as reparations per se, but to repair some of the damage that their family, they felt that their family had done in the past. We talked to a lot of people who said things like that. Um, but more generally, they just really feel like everything, every part of their lives needs to be aligned. So we saw this in how they wanted to make their professional lives as much as you know aligned with the values that they have. They wanted to make their lives as parents uh, align with their values, um, at, you know, their lives as consumers, as Sharna has already mentioned. Uh, so this, this emphasis on living your values, as we say in the book, living your values seamlessly across all parts of your life is very important. There's somebody in the book who says, you know, they would quote him saying, philanthropy is not something you do, but it's a part of who you are. Uh, so philanthropy is just one way in which they live their values, but they want to live them through their investments, uh, through their professional lives, and a lot of other ways. So this is one reason why, by the way, the next generation really is pushing the field of impact investing forward, um, both in their own personal investments and their, found, their family foundation investments. Um, so I would think for sure they take a holistic view of philanthropy, and they feel like that's a great contribution they can make as a generation to the way we think about wealth. Yeah, it's, I mean, really interesting to hear that. And I think that that idea of trying to sort of use philanthropy as far as possible as a tool to address perceived harm that's been done in the past, particularly if you've kind of inherited wealth, is absolutely fascinating. Um, uh, Shana, I just wanted to ask you and kind of circle back to, to something that, that touches on um, what we were talking about earlier in terms of how uh, next gens make choices about their giving. Um, we mentioned at one point the, the role of advisors in passing, but I'm just sort of interested in the question of if next gen donors are, are coming to philanthropy for the first time and they they want it to be a way of expressing their values and they're trying to make choices about what to do, who do they turn to, if anyone, for advice on on their giving? Do they do they look to their peers? Do they look to professional advisors or you know if they're in in inherited wealth do they look within the family it's a great question we asked next gen where they learn their values around giving and who they were influenced by and surprisingly 89 percent of them said their parents 63 percent their grandparents uh, and then afterwards sort of you know peers and close friends I, I was honestly thinking it might be from twitter but um it, i think it's good for all of us to remember that um, whether our as parents and grandparents, we are verbally communicating about philanthropy or modeling our values, right? When we go out at night to be at a charitable event, you know, do we tell our kids where we're going so they know uh, that we're intending to do something mission-driven instead of just going out to a party, right? Um, whether we're, we're verbally communicating or modeling our next generation are, are, are being influenced about giving at a young age from from parents and grandparents. So we always like to remind families that um, what you're doing is often working and you're often transmitting your values down the generations consciously or unconsciously. And that makes a big difference. Secondarily, you know, next gen, depending on their age, don't always have professional advisors if their families do, right? So you tend to fall under the umbrella of your parents' attorney or accountant until you come of age and I don't know, need to buy your own, you know, your own home for the first time. Um, but next gen, particularly of inherited wealth, don't often get launched to be independent and have their own advisors um, at as young an age as, as most of the world. And so um, we tell advisors, you know, why don't you encourage your clients to at least introduce you to their children so they see you as a resource? Um, not our research, but I think it was uh, PNC Bank's research shows that after the first parent passes away, only 45% of the kids stay with their parents' advisors. And after the second parent passes away, only 2%. 
And so it really behooves advisors to make that connection. I know it's often easier just to deal with the, their, you know, your primary client, the, the one who um, you know, is the owner of the wealth, but it behooves your firm <laughs> and your practice to build a relationship with the next generation. Um, and then if you do, you know, that's the opportunity to get to know them as a whole person, to ask what their values are, to understand what their goals are, you know, to stick to kind of the above the, the horizon uh, bigger questions that inform the below horizon, you know, technical planning questions, which will come later as they step into more autonomy around their wealth. Yeah, it's something I've, I've heard here in the UK where there's been a lot of focus on kind of, you know, building a culture of, of philanthropy and part of that conversation has been about the role of, of advisors. I'm really interested in whether you have a sense that, that uh, a reasonable number of advisors in, in the US context actually kind of get that narrative and see uh, philanthropy as a key part of their toolkit um, in terms of developing those more sophisticated strategic relationships because I think over here one thing I've heard is that advisors who at the moment are locked into quite transactional relationships are quite scared almost about introducing that values element in there because they feel as though it's sort of taking the conversation uh, a bit too far um, but actually the value of it if you do it is is enormous and um, do you feel in the US as though there are quite a lot of advisors who kind of see that as part of their role? Yes what you're describing resonates when I started in the field 20 years ago um, I do recall a hesitancy of advisors to even broach the subject of philanthropy you know like how how dare I insist <laughs> that a client think about giving their money away um, and the firms weren't encouraging the independent advisors to do it because they didn't want to release the assets that they had under management. So there wasn't a lot of motivation to do that. Um, I think that's shifted over the years that I've been in this field. You know, increasingly, I don't know, Michael, I wonder what you think, but increasingly we are um, experiencing um, clients saying that they care about more than just the money, right? They care about their overall legacy in the world, not just their financial legacy. And so that I think is also driving advisors to, um, ask the clients how they can serve them, right? If we think about the shifts in the wealth management field, it's not just about investing money. Now, financial institutions have a wealth management platform where they can serve a client on sort of all of their needs. Um, and philanthropy has been added to that suite of services, you know, next to trust and state attorneys and accountants and life insurance and so on. So uh, I do think in the U.S. that's starting to shift. Um, I know at 2164, uh, we offer training for professionals um, to understand next-gen and multi-generational philanthropy and how to work um, with those relationships. And uh, I, I just anecdotally would say that it you know, we used to just serve the philanthropic space and now we're serving more financial advisors in that training, which might be an indication of um, growing, <laughs> growing incentive to work with clients in that manner. Um, and maybe lastly, I would just say uh, philanthropy does tend to be a training ground for, for next-gen wealth holders as well, right? So if a family is not ready to bring their next-gen into making financial stewardship decisions, um, they might get some education uh, on wealth and uh, by working on philanthropy together. Um, I think about Sarah OJ, who um, her story is featured in our book. Her parents started a set up a small fund and introduced them to an advisor when they were in their their teens. And she says, you know, I was studying. Um, she, she grew up in Geneva, so she said, you know, I was studying for my exams and didn't really want to prioritize. 
um, philanthropy, but really looking back, it was the it was instrumental to building the relationship between the siblings, introducing them to the charitable space, allowing them to take risks at a young age before they had higher stakes so they could quote fail forward and learn from the experience. Um, and she said it's, you know, it changed all of their lives. I will, I will add uh, that just to be clear, even in the US, but I think probably this is true globally, that the, the young people are still ahead of the advisors in this orientation. I think that, you know, the, the advising community is trying to, and, and whether this is wealth advisors or, or other kinds of advisors to families uh, with means, they're, they're still lagging behind. They're still realizing uh, that, you know, they need to change in order to, um, to, to meet the needs and, and request and, and keep, frankly, keep the clients uh, of of these younger generations, uh, and so I think still even even with you know a lot of things that are happening, the good work that's being done to try to bring the advisors community along, and they're recognizing the need to have the values conversation and to talk about philanthropy and to to treat their engagement with the next generation not just as a transaction, but as a potentially sort of transformative conversation about how they want to have meaning in their lives and make change in the world. That there's still, you know, I think your average wealth or financial advisor is is still kind of reticent uh, to go there, and uh, and I think that's, you know, philanthropy really needs them to start to step up and see the writing on the wall that that's that's the way to engage the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm in danger. I'm aware that we're in danger of running too long, and there's. I, I definitely want to to get in uh, one last question before I let you both go. But um, I, I wanted to ask something about the kind of the wider context of of philanthropy uh, and how that relates to to what you've seen about next gen's approaches. And um, because obviously, I mean, we know, and I think people listening to the podcast will be more than aware that. Uh, the last few years in particular have seen a period in which there's been uh, greatly enhanced scrutiny of philanthropy, sort of a growing number of critiques, um, some scepticism and even cynicism about particularly big money philanthropy and the role it plays in democracy, its relationship to inequality and all these sorts of things. When you've spoken to next-gen donors, do you get a sense that they kind of embrace some of those critiques and have taken them on board and see them as important or do you get a sense that actually it's making them more nervous about engaging in philanthropy and might kind of affect their desire to to get involved you know i think this is really fascinating because the the next generation as we've already talked about does that you know recognize that they sit in a powerful privileged position and that there are inequities that led to them sitting in that position and that there are and that, and that those power dynamics are often hidden uh, or, or discounted. And they've seen that with previous generations in their own families or, or previous generations of donors. Um, and so they're, on the whole, I would say, they are very open to the idea of let's call out philanthropy for its power uh, and recognize that we need to be transparent about uh, you know, how important it is to, to, you know, be careful and be humble and have humility and how you go about the work that you do. And, 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 you know, I, so I think they're, they're open very much to the, to critique um, what I think they would resist. And I think they are in some ways an evidence of uh, an alternative to this critique. They would resist this idea that everybody in the elite big giving circles is doing it for, uh, you know, to launder their reputation or to uh, to attain and and retain the status that they have, or these these sort of critiques that are out there that kind of paint elite giving with a single brush and 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 act as though everybody in that world 
um, is doing it for in the same way for the same reasons um, and not recognizing their power and privilege. You know, they stand and they would point to themselves, I think, as standing for um, as, as sort of evidence that that's not the case. Uh, that there is, in some ways, a lot of things happening in the world of big giving, in the world of these, you know, multi-generational giving families or earners who are just coming on to their roles as, as major donors. Uh, they stand as evidence that, that, that they genuinely are interested in impact. They may fail, they may stumble, they may let their privilege come through in ways that, that they don't like and have to be called out on, um, but they, they are in it not necessarily for the reasons that some of the critics uh, assume or, or claim that all big donors are in it for. Um, and, uh, and so I think they would want to maybe help to change the reputation uh, of big giving or help to provide some evidence uh, of how elite giving can be better than what the critics uh, uh, to talk about it as. Um, and, you know, and, and if, if they, I think for all of us, if they end up being that, that example and showing us how elite giving can do this work genuinely for moving the needle on the causes that everybody cares about, then that's, that's a good thing for all of us. That's why we sort of end the book by saying we're cautiously optimistic about where they can take philanthropy. It's going to be a rough road and there's going to be a lot of, you know, controversy uh, potentially as there already is. But, um, but I think they want to lean into kind of changing the way that elite philanthropy is perceived and the good that it can do. Uh, absolutely. I mean, cautious optimism is generally my sort of default mode. So I'm very much on board with that. <laughs> um, and it just remains to say, um, thanks ever so much to both of you for coming on the podcast. But before I finally uh, let you go, um, is there anything that you want to kind of draw people's attention to in terms of stuff you've got coming up with the book or anything more broadly that you want to leave people with? We're always happy to be in conversations with people like you. Thanks so much for having us. And if others are interested in uh, an author talk or an informal conversation with their philanthropic family or community, we'd be delighted to do it. It's uh, obviously a, a passion as well as a profession for both of us. So um, thanks to all of the listeners and all the work you're doing to engage the next generation and make change in the nonprofit and NGO space. And I'll just I'll just add uh, my own thing as well and uh, and just point people that I'm sure we can post this when you post the podcast for some resources, but you know, we, there's a, there's a website that we use for the book um, that has a lot of, of different resources on it that are, and feature it points to many of the featured donors like those we've been describing. It's called generationimpactbook.org. Um, and then we've, we've recently put out a couple of blogs on, um, on the, the, the evidence that we found in that 2020 survey, which I think is particularly interesting to people, you know, how the next generation responded to the crises of 2020. And so we can put some links to those blogs as well for sort of the most up-to-date research that we've done on the next gen. Definitely. I'll, I'll put links to, to all of those in the, the show notes and to, to other things that kind of link to what we've been talking about. Um, just remains to say thanks ever so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure having the chance to talk and, uh, you know, hope to, uh, meet in person at some point when that becomes a thing that everyone can do again here's here's to that terrific thank you again okay great well my thanks again to shana and to michael for coming on the podcast it was great to have a chance to talk with them uh, lots of really interesting things they had to say and i definitely recommend uh hunting down a copy of their book uh, if you're interested in that because there's loads more in there um, I'll put links in the show notes to where you can find that the website for it and some uh, kind of associated materials um, as ever if you're interested in issues around philanthropy and civil society more broadly do check out the Giving Thought pages at the CAF website 
Uh, follow me on Twitter. That'll still be possible to do even once I've left CAF uh, at Rodri underscore H underscore Davis um, and at Philiteracy if you like stuff that's more about kind of academic writing and the history of philanthropy. And indeed, uh, part, amongst my plans, uh, I'm hoping to expand Philiteracy a little bit into something that's not just a Twitter feed, but uh, maybe has its own website and a bit more of a, a kind of presence of its own. So stay tuned for that. Um, obviously, uh, if you've got ideas for uh, p- things we could talk about on a podcast or people that could come on a podcast, uh, don't drop a line to givingthoughts at gaffonline.org uh, um, email address because I'm not sure what will be happening with that. Um, if you are interested uh, in sort of discussing any possibilities for coming on future podcasts that I might be doing, um, drop me a line. You can get hold of me uh, um, at the email address, which is philiteracy, P H I W L I T E R A C Y, at gmail.com for now. Um, and you know I can kind of involve you in any plans that I've got going forwards Um, if you're interested in getting in contact with CAF um, about any possible podcasts they might be doing um, definitely check out the CAF website and I'm sure you'll um, be able to find out more information there Um, you know other than that check out the back issues of the Giving Thoughts podcast which will still be available um, and keep your eyes peeled for whatever I and indeed CAF do next in the podcasting space Uh, And I will see you all in some guys next time. Bye for now. (laughs) 